Hey, this is Dr. Sade Callwood, and you're listening to the Million Dollar Mind Podcast. What's going on, millionaires? You're listening to the Million Dollar Mind Podcast, episode 120 on the psychological effects of poverty in the Black community. What's up, millionaires? My name is Shade Callwood, and I'm a doctor in clinical psychology and also known for my online personality. On this episode, you can expect to hear about the importance of Black mental health on today's episode, as well as how to dismantle white supremacy while staying true to yourself. Make sure you are locked in with us on the Million Dollar Mind podcast. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Million Dollar Mind podcast, the number one passion and attraction podcast in the world. Thanks to each and every one of you for tuning in weekend week out. This is the only place for tips and tricks on identifying your passions and attracting opportunities to make a living while living your dreams. And today's guest, you've heard from her briefly, it is Dr. Shade Callwood, and she is a doctor of clinical psychology. So very, I, I was very careful, the, the person that I picked to have this conversation, but you guys know me and there's that this has been a conversation I've been looking forward to having for a very long time, because this is the Million Dollar Mind podcast. And in order for us to protect our minds, we have to know what we're up against and what we need to protect our minds from. Uh, so we're here to talk about Black mental health and just, you know, different red flags to, you know, really see and identify ways that we can fortify our minds against those things. You know, also, Dr. Sade is a part of the East Lansing uh, Independent Study. And we're going to talk more about that as well. And also, she uses this phrase, the last conversation we had, she called herself a master student of the community, which is big, big, big. So we're going to talk about all those things. But Dr. Sade, let's let's start with that. And um, when you say you're a master student of the community, um, that is, one, a very bold statement to call yourself a master student of anything, right? But as, of the community, where did you get, uh, how do you feel as though you're a master student of the community? I think mostly that's about listening to the people and what they want. Um, I think a lot of times when we work in this kind of field, I think it's very easy for people to think that they know what others need. Um, and there's a big, big, big difference between um, kind of learning and being critical of yourself, but also assuming that you know everything. If you're not able to receive feedback or constructive criticism in any way, you already start limiting yourself. And so to be a master of that, you need to know when it's time to listen and take a step back. Um, and so I feel like that's something that I've tried to honor and continue to do. Um, and you make mistakes here and there, but I think it's about how you bounce back and not like use a defeatist mindset, if you will. Mm, I like that defeatist mindset. And I mean, if you could, you know, for our millionaires that are listening, go a little bit further as what it means to have a defeatist mindset. Yeah, I think one, one of the things that I've noticed a lot throughout the work that I do, people already prescribe their emotions, they prescribe what they think things are going to be like. And so uh, within psychology, we, we call that emotional reasoning. Um, and so by having that defeatist mindset, you're already walking into a situation saying this is going to be bad, like I know I'm not going to be able to do this as well as the next person. If that's the way that you're talking to yourself internally, why on earth would your mind feel like I can actually do this. I can accomplish something like your mind and your poor self is very sensitive. I refer to that as like your inner child, if you will, if you would never talk to your child or a loved one in the way that you talk to yourself, 
what kind of sense does that make? That does not promote uh, motivation. It doesn't promote transformation and growth whatsoever. It keeps you actually really stuck in a vicious cycle. Um, and so that's something that I definitely talk to a lot of people about and getting out of your head in that way and realizing that the only person who could truly uplift you is you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. And a part of what you said kind of reminded me of this article that I read some time ago, and I've mentioned it on here a dozen of times, this filter in our brain called the reticular activating system, uh, I believe is what it's called. And it's like pretty much what you just said, like, why would your mind after you're telling yourself X, Y, Z, why would your mind think the opposite? Your mind is literally going to look for the physical proof to back the thoughts that you're feeding it constantly. So your, your, your mind is like a, a defense mechanism. So it doesn't want to be made a liar. So a lot of times when we go into this defeatist mentality, we're giving our mind the ammunition to support that. And it's, it's unfortunate. So uh, with that said, I guess that, you know, this is the perfect segue because you've already starting with some gems. Um, you know, what has been your, you know, your experiences so far that have brought you and molded you into the Dr. Shade that's sitting in front of us today? Yeah, I think a lot of that is culture for me. Um, I do identify as West Indian, so I'm Puerto Rican, uh, West India. My dad's from uh, Tortola, British Virgin Islands. Um, and so oftentimes, uh, culture kind of uh, impacts the way that you see the world and how you see yourself. And I really saw a need from a really young age. I don't, I don't even know what I was thinking. Apparently, when everybody else was partying, I was like, how can I save the world? <laughs> um, but um, <clears throat> more specifically, when the uh, Black Lives Matter movement had started, um, of course, there was a lot of activi activism, folks on the ground um, protesting and doing all of that. And I really was struggling with what is my what is my part or what is my role um, in this movement? If I'm not going to be out in the streets where sometimes, unfortunately, the, the, the protesting, it only lasts so long. What happens after that? Um, and I think that, that was a part that a lot of people kind of missed and dropped the ball on. And so I thought to myself, if I'm not out in the streets protesting, what is a way that I can still contribute to the cause uh, with what I do every day? Um, and so I started to incorporate that into my clinical work, which I ended up doing my dissertation on young black men's experiences of aggressive policing. And then later on um, in this past year, I actually completed the uh, oversight commission with East Lansing. We were able to put together an ordinance to submit to city council for um, recommendations to improve police and community interactions. Um, and it was unanimously accepted um, as it was, which is like a significant significant um, kind of moment in East Lansing history. And I'm so glad to have been a part of that, even though I was no longer living in Michigan. Um, they thought that it was worthy enough for, for them to keep me on uh, based off my past uh, research. Nice, nice. And, you know, congratulations on that as well, because I mean, it speaks volumes when people go against their standards and, and still want you to be a part of, uh, of something or whatever it is that they're doing, even though it's outside of the norm. So uh, it just meant that, you know, your work or, you know, something about you stood out and made you a qualified candidate to, you know, to be a part of that study. Um, so let, let's dive into, you know, the the nitty gritty, right? From from your studies, you know, do you believe that there is a, a stigma regarding how poverty can affect different groups in different communities? Uh, well, differently, for lack of better words. Absolutely. Um, so I think, you know, this is no secret, or I hope it's no secret by now, but uh, the institutions on which we operate on in this country are already inherently disproportionate. 
it's not meant for people of color, specifically black people, uh, to move up within that system. Even something just like anecdotally that I'm remembering when that whole Robin Hood thing popped off and all of a sudden they had to, you know, halt, you know, certain stocks because too many people who should quote unquote, not know about these things and how to advance themselves financially, they cut that short. Um, and that's just one of the most like overt ways that that happens. Um, but these systems are unfortunately not designed for us to thrive. There's lack of uh, representation, even within the field of psychology. At this very uh, time in history, it's still only about 5% Black. Um, and that's really unfortunate given the amount of support that um, we know that Black communities need um, as far as like promoting healing, not only collectively within the society, but individually. A lot of us are still oppressed uh, psychologically. Um, and I think that that's something that's definitely keeping um, our people behind. Um, but I think that I've been seeing a lot more growth and changes within the field and just in society in general, but we still got a lot of work to do. Uh, this is just the very, very beginning. Um, and unfortunately, like I mentioned before, sometimes when some of these bigger movements happen, it's in, in the media, it's buzzing for you know a couple of weeks at that, and then they're on to the next story. And again, we continue to forget what happens after the cameras are shut off, when, what happens after the news outlets are gone. Um, we, we need to continue to do work. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's more so of like free thought, being able to question everything and really ask yourself, why is this? why am I receiving this information or the way that I'm receiving it and how do I feel about it are two easy questions that we could start to ask ourselves a little bit more. Um, what do you think are some of the biggest red flags of this psychological oppression that you see so that we can be a little bit more aware uh, of it so that we can combat it? Yeah, I think part of that, um, and I've mentioned that a little bit already, um, it does require representation. Uh, so getting of us in those systems um, because it, although it doesn't seem like it's the biggest change here when people start to see um, people that look like them or have similar similar experiences like them in certain positions that now opens up that idea that like hey I can do that too um, you know like what's what's different between me and this person um, and again just thinking of like some kind of like pop culture-ish even examples when Black Panther came out the uh, the outpour of oh my gosh someone that looks like me that's in that position it really moved people um, and at least to me that also just kind of signified like okay let's start there representation get us getting ourselves into spaces or if we're not invited to the table making our own um, the other piece that I think is important um, to think about is um, how how can folks start to expose the impact of diversity in these systems? A lot of research has been coming out lately, um, even like Forbes put out some information on how organizations can actually become more profitable the more they diversify their team. Um, and so it, that's, that's coming from a, a money perspective, which you know companies love to hear about. Um, it also requires folks to start making more space for reflection, reflection on how they've been impacted by different systems, how to just have basic conversations about race, which a lot of people are still uncomfortable about, uh, even folks in the in the black community. Um, and lastly, partnering um, with different other you know, uh, organizations, if you will, or industries um, to to just activate that that change right and working together instead of working against one another um so i i think that those are probably like the main kind of things that we can start doing to to, to 
to make action happen. Um, and definitely some of the things that I think will start to open up others' eyes around the issues that unfortunately in 2021 we're still experiencing. Uh, unfortunately, and uh, I do want to touch on the uh, the idea of the diversity diversity and even a little bit of integration in there as well um because you you always you always get the the two extreme sides of it you get the the extreme side is like we need to you know diversify and integrate into everything and then you get the side where we need to just make everything separate because you know historically it has been known that you know there are certain groups that put these these faces into these positions solely as this false hope is like a false hope of integration and, and everything is over and is equal and things like that. So um, do you think that there is a fine line between, between saying, Oh yes, we need to see more people in these positions or finally just saying, I think that we need to build uh, more of a focus around copying that, but tailoring it to specifically what we need as a community. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think that there's definitely opportunity to to tailor, but it has to start somewhere. Um, and sometimes um, it, it's a little bit unknown where to start um, with making some of this change. But, you know, one of the things that I encourage folks to do, depending on whatever system they're in, um, is start to question, ask questions, be critical. Uh, one of the things that we know historically has been an issue within the Black community is lack of education on multiple levels, whether it's lack of education in the education system, in the healthcare system, in the judicial system. For years, decades even, uh, centuries at that, um, this information was withheld from us. Um, and so with that, you don't know what you don't know. Um, but I think that if folks are starting to get into these spaces, you need to start applying pressure. You know, you want to have a mission statement on your website that says we promote diversity, we are inclusive. Okay, show me how. Let me see what your staff looks like. What kinds of initiatives have you been working on? Do you like often maybe reflect on ways that you guys are making progress or areas that you still need to continue to make progress in? It is not just enough to have the Black Lives Matter, you know, banner on your website. Like what, what does that do? Nothing. Great. I'm, I'm so glad you recognize that, but that there, there requires uh, action and steps, tangible ways of showing here is where we know that we were going wrong and that we could have improved. And then here's what we're going to do to change that and come up with, you know, a resolution, if you will. But we're, I understand why a lot of people feel like they're unable to uh, point those things out for fear of retaliation, which is a very real thing. Um, but I think that for um, at least a, a starting place, start to ask more questions about like, oh, okay, what do you see here? What's going to be different here? Um, and I, I think that that's probably a, a place to start, if you will. Uh, I 100% agree. I definitely am a fan of interviewing the interviewer, right? You know, getting a better idea of how to, you know, point out the BS and, you know, see if this person is just telling me because they look at my resume and think I could, you know, help out their company, but they truly have no interest in helping me out. I think that we can do a better job of, you know, asking the right questions. But then I also, on the second, you know, the other edge of the sword i see how that can be very difficult and could be seen you know deemed as a luxury because as we're talking about poverty you know they're just the simple fact that people need jobs and a lot of people need jobs that are better off than the than the typical you know minimum wage position the entry-level position 
people are looking to, you know, to get a job that is qualified for what they're, what they went to school for or their skills and things like that. But it's just the fact of, do I ask these questions because I really need to, you know, be in an environment that welcomes me or do I chose not to ask these questions so I could get this job? And, and it's like a, it's like a double-edged sword, um, which I guess, you know, just coming from, you know, your experience and, you know, your values, which do you think is, you know, more important? Do you ask these things up front or do you enter the position first? And maybe it's better to, you know, pick these things apart and try to improve the, um, the system, I guess you could say from the inside. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a, a delicate balance. And I think um, every person's threshold um, for going into these systems, knowing that they're trying to make change is different. Whenever you are trying to change a system, you are going to face resistance. And not everybody has uh, the emotional capacity to deal with that. Um, and I think that sometimes that does put a lot of unnecessary pressure on Black people. So you end up becoming the token Black person uh, in your company or your organization. And that is damaging in and of itself. Um, but one of the things that I definitely encourage uh, um, some of the Black clients that I've worked with in the past is get a feel for uh, the environment that you'll be in. Take notice of how they interact with you throughout the interview process um, and how they follow up with you. Uh, ask these questions up front. So if you decide that this is a system you want to enter in, you know what you're up against. Um, and then as soon as you enter that space, find allies. Fortunately, unfortunately, I will say that all skin folk are not kin folk. Um, however, there are also other allies that might identify uh, with folks of color uh, from different angles, um, based off different like social identities. Um, but I think it's it's important to be critical of what type of system you're entering in. Uh, might that mean that you become complicit as well? Does that mean that you're often silenced? Um, or feel like you're invisible or unheard. Um, and again, this is not this is not uh, the role for everyone um, in terms of getting into a system and changing it. But once you are in it, you're able to get a different angle, and then you can you know at least put forward some suggestions or put together some sort of plan uh, to de deconstruct uh, some of the ideal status quo norms, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And um, I would even add as a as a man. Uh, it, it's not necessarily normal to think of, you know, making decisions about a new job or a new position or a transition. It's not really normal to take an emotional approach to it as we're always, you know, taught to think logically, you know, weigh the, you know, weigh the pros and cons and just make the decision based off of that. But I do think just from my experiences and I'm starting to become more connected to, you know, figuring out what's important to me. I do believe that we can be a little bit more emotional when making these decisions and, you know, figuring out is this good for my mental health? Is this good for my inner peace? Right. Do I feel, um, did I feel any level of discomfort, not discomfort because it's different, but discomfort because I see batting eyes or, you know, whisperers, if, you know, going across the room, does it make me feel uncomfortable to where I would be dealing with this on a daily basis? It's another, you know, form of question that we should, we should ask ourselves. Um, would you consider fear, you know, fear is, is an emotion. Would you would you think that fear is like the main, uh, you know, emotional or psychological effect that comes with, you know, poverty and a lot of other plights that happen in the black community? Absolutely. Uh, fear as a basic uh, emotion uh, is something that we are all born with. Um, it's a primitive emotion, if you will. So like back when the cavemen were, were out there uh, doing their thing. 
it activates their uh, fight, flight, or freeze response, right? And so that's typical for any and all of us. Um, and so when you think about uh, some of the uh, effects of poverty, uh, that forces people to live consistently in survival mode, which is not good uh, for one's psychological well-being, nor is it good for one's uh, physical well-being. Um, that's going to start to release, you know, ongoing, um, you know, pumps of cortisol. You're always on edge. That contributes to cardiac issues, respiratory issues, the whole nine yards. Um, and so thinking of the ways in which poverty can ignite that for folks, you're talking about basic needs, basic, basic needs that folks are still tr uh, struggling to attain, that is going to consistently put that person in that fight or flight freeze response, um, which is completely unhealthy and sometimes makes us do really weird things. So when you're scared, sometimes you have these automatic response that you just give off and then you, you, you know, sit back and reflect like, why did I just do that? That is your survival instincts trying to keep you alive. And so back in the, in the caveman's days, that was more so of a, like a physical threat. Of course, we're, we're no longer, not everyone, uh, you know, is out there uh, living in the wild and having to fend off from predators, but it's more so transformed into this idea of psychological threat, emotional threat, threat to your ego, threat to your sense of self and like really tearing folks down. And that's, that's the, that was one of the most difficult things and it comes to be one of the most difficult things to dismantle is those psychological bondage um, that a lot of folks uh, in the Black community are dealing with. It's intergenerational. It literally changes the structure of your DNA and is passed down from generation to generation. So a lot of us are still combating things that our ancestors were combating, if you will, from an emotional standpoint. Um, and it's very, very, very destructive. Um, so definitely something that comes up a whole lot. Yeah, yeah. So for lack of better words, you know, a constant state of fear and this survival mode uh, causes us to, you know, do a lot of things, whether it's, you know, acting violence, you know, you know, lose respect for ourselves and our and our counterparts, um, you know, just do a lot of things that a lot of people will, you know, just blame as, the, you know, the victim, you know, they'll look at the victim and say, how dare you do these things? But it, it's so much deeper due to the constant state of, you know, fear and, and survival that a lot of people are just put in just from having to live in some of these communities. Um, and while we're on the topic of fear, another one being interactions with the police, which I know you've spent a lot of time uh, working on that, uh, specifically with trying to improve the uh, relations and interactions between police and community members. Um, tell us a little bit more about that initiative and, and what prompted it. Okay. Are you, I just want to uh, clarify, are you talking about uh, my work on aggressive policing research or are you talking about the commission that I was on? Um, the research, the research on the aggressive policing. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So um, with, um, you know, policing in, in the black community, uh, we know it's not a secret. We know that policing developed out of slave patrolling um, and literally were created to make sure that any of the slaves that tried to escape uh, any of the plantations, they would get caught and have to, um, you know, be sacked or obviously in killed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, the work that I saw um, or the work that I did rather came from a place of being frustrated at how many times are we going to have this conversation? How many times is there going to be a new hashtag? How many times are we going to see another news report that an unarmed Black person was killed at the hands of the police? How 
much more times are we going to hear that? When I started looking at what the data was at the time, so I started my grad program in 2015. It's probably around like 2016 is when I was actually getting into the work. Uh, I realized once I started doing some um, searches, you know, uh, around research that had already been done, and a lot of the the research that was coming out at the time was primarily about statistics um, of like, you know, how often this happens and what the circumstances are, or coming from more of the police angle and like decision to shoot. Um, and what I realized is like, how come we're not talking to the people that actually experience this? Why aren't we asking questions of what was that like? What do you think needs to be different? How would you feel more safe, you know, walking in this world in the skin that you're in? And there was virtually nothing. So in some regards, the research that I did was groundbreaking and more so in the last few years, we've seen a lot more information coming out about that. But I was really, really, really perplexed by the fact that we had not taken any time to talk to these survivors about what their experience was. And in my opinion, and this is me, I'm not a math person, numbers do not move me. Emotions move me. And so when you can sit in a room and talk to someone about some of the things that they've probably never told anyone else or felt that they couldn't talk about with anyone else, you realize how much of an impact that that has on people's day-to-day life. And then now you're bringing that back to your family. You're bringing that back to your community. And it's keeping us in this cycle of just perpetuating um, in, in the ways that there are so many disparities um, between Blacks and other people in this country when it comes to policing. Um, and so I really wanted to dive into understanding and giving these young men a platform to speak about their, their, their experiences. A large number of the people that I spoke with told me that they had never had this conversation before. No one has ever asked them, what was that like for you? And the ability to be heard and to be seen is astronomical. Like there's, there's nothing that compares to that. And it was to me really heartbreaking to hear that for a lot of these young men, I was the first person who ever asked, tell me about your experience. And that's all that is, is having a conversation. And that is not even happening, just the conversation, which to me, uh, sometimes is, is really sad to think about. Um, but on the opposite end, I am so excited and so proud for what kinds of changes are to come, seeing more um, black and brown people entering in these spaces, getting these degrees um, that are you know, in higher education and getting into these systems and really, really demanding change. It can feel like a very hopeless and despairing kind of cycle, um, but I am so, so, so surprised and shocked and uh, in a good way um, at, at how much change is to come. And I think that hopefully within the next five to 10 years, we're hopefully going to be having a different kind of conversation. Yeah, definitely. And um, of course, you know, a few years before this conversation, you know, the only way that we thought, you know, to combat or to protect ourselves against, you know, police brutality was just teaching our kids how to comply and how to respond and how to answer a yes or no question and how to not make sudden movements, how to do all these things the right way. And then, of course, despite that, you start to see that those things don't work and unfortunate circumstances still happen. Um, do you, what do you see, um, you know, going on from your research and from your studies as, uh, you know, ways that that can be improved outside of what we, we've we already been doing, right? Because we can only tell and teach, but so much, something has to change on the other side as well. What are some of those things that you think needs to change besides That's the obvious ones? Right? Yeah. <laughs> 
so uh, what I will say is, again, getting back to this um, idea of uh, emotion moving people rather than numbers, it's very easy to look at a number and not understand the story behind it. Um, and one of the things that really prompted me to take the angle on my research that I did was um, I had listened to uh, an interview with The Breakfast Club um, that uh, they had a conversation with Angela Rye, and she talked about going through uh, TSA security um, and how, you know, the way that they were, um, I guess, searching her uh, really triggered uh, a sense of like a boundary violation, if, if you will. So she mentioned, you know, I've never been sexually assaulted, but in that moment, I, I, I realized what that felt like to be violated. And I think the more and more that we can get some of these stories out and connect with the people who are in power in the society to feel something I think that we're just going to be like just knocking on dead doors all day long. If we cannot connect to people on a basic like emotional level, we could talk their ears off all day long about the statistics and nothing changes. Um, and so at least with, you know, some of the work that I've done and, and what I've seen um, starting to at that place of having a conversation is really just like the basic foundation that still we cannot do. It seems it's very difficult to have for a lot of people because they don't want to change the system. Um, but when you look at, um, again, this idea of representation, it's creating more voices at the table. There are multiple ways of knowing, which is a, a phrase that um, I got from my internship. Um, and it really does uh, kind of give you a glimpse that like all of us can be looking at the same situation, but from completely different angles. And the more and more we can have these conversations, hold these systems accountable for the change, I don't think we're going to get very far until that starts to become the norm. And I think we're getting there. Um, but unfortunately we're still um, being met with a lot of resistance, but uh, just because you are going through hell, if you will, doesn't mean you stop there. You have to keep going. Yeah. I, I definitely think that there is a, uh, a lack of accountability um, as far as the, the other side is concerned. One um, just, just the statement of how we hear terms like, back the blue and then there are a lot of you know uh you know just graphics that just sh clearly show we have to be supporting this side and it's like there's no other graphics no other statements or phrases besides black lives matter that it, it that triggers these these um these uh counter statements which is like back the blue and things like that which i just feel as though the the easy way out is is not taking the accountability of addressing what the problem is and, and one thing that you said that i really want to point out is numbers don't necessarily move you but people do um and though there's also another phrase that numbers don't lie people do right numbers don't lie but i do think that we can take an approach to just connect more with people emotionally and then pick out the bs from that you know i i've, I've been in sales probably for about three four almost five years now. So I, I, I do a very good job of being able to see when people are not being truthful with themselves or with me and, you know, vice versa. Do you feel like that is even something that is feasible or realistic to expect of officers, you know, maybe to not look at something so routine and maybe ask more emotional questions to, you know, see how a person's day is going first, right? You know, try to ask them, yeah, they ask why, do you know why we're being stopped? But that's just as routine as, license and registration so do you think that that is a realistic a realistic ask i think it is uh but the willingness to do so not so much um so even when it comes to um like numbers per se uh again 
very difficult to attach uh, the context behind the numbers. And one thing that I uh, found out uh, as I was starting my research, so I started grad school around 2015. I, you know, put together a proposal on the research I wanted to do. And I had all of these, you know, numbers um, to, uh, like from the Department of Justice and um, some of the other bigger um, institutions that keep track of the numbers of like police stops and such. When I went back to now do my literature review, a number of those articles were no longer found. Links are blank, don't exist anymore. And I'm like, where are these reports? So within the the Trump administration, um, a lot of those reports were removed. Uh, There are ways to get access to them, like through archives and such. Um, But you realize even the basic foundation of those numbers and the statistics aren't even out there. So folks who are more naive to what's happening in this world and think, oh, policing is not really that disproportionate to, to uh, between blacks and whites. There's more whites that are killed at the hands of the police. Well, sure, but that's because more whites make up this country than there do black people. It's only 13, about 13% um, black people are represented in the US. So that's misinformation being misguided and people are you know, just operating off of assumptions. As far as perhaps getting the other side to maybe see things uh, a little bit differently is this idea, again, of connecting on a basic um, like emotion of you know, inclusion, just wanting to be seen, wanting to be heard. But unfortunately, a lot of these people, just as I've mentioned before, that like intergenerational trauma is transmitted um, through each generation, this kind of uh, like white um, superiority ideology has also been deeply ingrained and rooted in some of these folks. And they think that they're right because that's what they've been taught. That's what they've been exposed to. They have not been in those spaces where, you know, difference of opinion is uh, welcomed and promoted. Um, It's all kind of just sticking to the status quo, because what happens is when people think that we're going to bring, you know, someone else to our table, that they think that that means that they're going to get less. And that's not what this entire movement is about at all. We're literally just asking for the bare minimum to be respected, to be treated like a human being to have access to the same um, kinds of resources that our white counterparts have. And for them to understand that just because we are helping someone else doesn't mean that that's pulling from your plate whatsoever. And I think that that's a, a point that people keep getting stuck on. Um, it's natural, right? When we feel like we're going to lose something, we try to hold on to it even more. Um, and I think that that's kind of what's happening with this idea of power within the society. Yeah, definitely. And even to to give some perspective to uh, the misinformation of, of numbers, right? And it, it, it happened. So I went to Chain University, one of the the oldest HBCU in, in the nation, uh, right? And it was an article when I was a student there that was put up um, comparing us to like one of the most um, violent schools in the state system. It's the only HBCU in the state system of Pennsylvania, right? And it was like the, it has the most, um, sexual assaults that happens on campus i was like that's odd because like these things happen i I know but it's like i've never seen it to where there's an article talking about this is the most of all the schools and then they the the uh the header was more so the most violent it was very polarizing but when you read it it was more so per per capita or, or or something like that they used like a per student and then when I look at it, they, they took the number of incidences and divided it by how many students were on each campus. 
And though because we were one of the we're also the smallest school in the state system, of course, it would appear to be higher than it would at the other schools when we only have 500 students. And then you look at every single other school in the state system and they're like well into the 2,500s, 5,000 for a bigger school. And it's just like, wow. So it's like if we had five over a five year span, because we only have 500 students, it makes us appear more violent or that this happens more frequently at our school versus the school that it happens to 30 times in a five-year span, but that we have 6,000 students, then it appears as less. So it was just very odd of, you know, just that's what brought me, you know, that's what kind of came to my mind, as you mentioned, the the misinformation of, you know, data and using these these headers to really put in a, a false, you know, uh, you know, theory into a lot of people's minds and to then look at that message and then demonize whatever group that that message is, is coming towards, um, which goes back to fear and, you know, other things that, you know, come into play with that. So if the goal uh, is to uplift the community, would you consider fear as the most or as a major handicap or the, the, the one that we should focus on the most uh, as far as trying to uplift our communities? Yeah, it's it's such a delicate balance um, when you think about uh, fear as that like that primary emotion that's driving things. Um, sometimes fear leads us to, as I mentioned before, act irrationally. Um, it puts us in a position of of wanting that instant relief, and so we start, you know, kind of grabbing at any which thing, and it's not as uh, organized and well thought out as it could be. Which sometimes it kind of feels like that's what happens with some of our social movements is that like everyone's pulling because everyone's desperate right desperate for that change to come really quick that we're not actually sitting together and coming up with a strategy this is a system that has been in place for centuries and specifically designed to keep some people out we cannot just run off of the fear emotion and think that we're going to have sustainable change sure we can make a lot of noise we can you know be demand to be seen but if we're not doing that in a strategic way that, again, is something that is sustainable, something that has like a tiered plan, if you will, we're going to keep having the same situation over and over and over again. Um, and so I think that that's kind of where, again, we, we get stuck. Um, but if we are able to, you know, put our minds together, really, really brainstorm, a lot more things can happen when we work together instead of working in silo. And I think that that's uh, something that comes up a lot. Mm -hmm. And and also to add, you know, fear, as you mentioned, causes us to act irrationally. It it can also cause us to not act at all. <laughs> you know, you have a lot of people say, well, if we start doing this, then we got to worry about X, Y, Z. And it's, it then it, it um, you know, freezes us to where now we don't make any initiatives or we don't do any action at all. And I, I'm definitely fortunate to say, you know, I've been, I came from a family that taught me about, you know, free thought and I do, you know, meditations and I read a lot of books and I do a lot of things that makes me feel like the only time I really fear is when I'm stepping into something new, like a new venture or, you know, a new position or a transition. That's the only time I really fear things. Um, what do you think are some basic practices um, or what practices have worked for you to you know, help you identify when you're fearful and how to not freeze and how to come with, up with a strategic plan to move past that fear. Yeah, um, I think one of the things that I think about, so this is kind of where some of my uh, uh, therapy training kind of comes in. I think about what 
what is this emotion that I'm feeling right now urging me to do? So, uh, you know, within therapy, we'll call that like an emotional urge. Um, so for anxiety, it's going to pull you for a lot of us. Uh, the anxiety piece pulls out this idea of avoidance, right? If I just don't deal with it, don't talk about it, don't look at it, it doesn't exist, which is really actually not the truth. It's still there. Um, but uh, obviously, we, we would avoid it so that we don't have to deal with that. Um, but one of the things that I think about is one, what is this emotion that I'm feeling right now? What is it driving me to do? What are going to be the outcomes of you know, whatever uh, decision or uh, reaction I choose to employ here? What kinds of consequences, good, bad, and different, what's going to come from that? Um, and also recognizing my own emotional threshold. I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier. Um, you know, being on the ground and doing that kind of work um, as far as activism goes is not for everyone. And I think that sometimes we, we do shame others uh, within our community, like you're not out there protesting, like where were you at? Everyone has their own threshold and everyone also has a different role within this uh, movement, if you will. Um, and again, so sometimes we've got the folks who are like, you know what, I'm going to get into the education system and try to make some change there. I'm going to get into the justice system to try to make change there. It's not just about being on the ground. We need that as part of the movement. Absolutely. Um, but there are so many other roles and ways that we can infiltrate the system, if you will, um, from different angles. And again, increasing that representation, increasing that critical thought around uh, this doesn't work anymore and we need to adapt and be flexible. Um, and those are the things that I think come up or the things that I think about the most. The other thing that I do think about as well is my own inner dialogue. How am I talking myself through this situation? Am I already painting this negative you know, experience or this negative emotion? How am I nurturing my inner self as I go through this? And again, it's that idea of also like granting yourself grace. Uh, a lot of our, us like, you know, kind of beat ourselves up about what we've done or not done um, as it relates to uh, the, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, or just generally improving uh, conditions for people of color, um, it's very easy to feel shamed. Um, and so then that can also trigger folks to just pull away even more. Like, what difference does it make if I'm out there? What what difference does my one vote make, uh, you know, in a, in a significant election? And that's where we continue to, like, really downplay what it means to to be collectively in unison. Numbers are so important here. And we can't just have a few people here doing that. Like we really need to come forward as a group um, to make some of these changes really happen. Well said, well said. And I, I think I might even needed that reminder myself, especially on the um, the voting aspect. You know, it can be very easy to, you know, when you s just hear things on the media and you you figure out the things that you figure out and then you find out the, the people are playing dirty and all the information that just you're overwhelmed with, with social media and the media it's easy to to think like that, like, oh, this this doesn't really count. You know, I don't really have no say or, you know, this protest is just going to end like all the other protests. Nothing happens. Right. It, it's so easy for us to think this. But I do appreciate that reminder because it is needed. And, and we all we see it all the time when it comes to raising dollars. You know, we all, you know, gave each other a dollar. You know, we picked a, one new person every single day to give them a dollar in unison, that person will, their life will change. They will literally skip tax brackets if we were all in on, on the same page with that. So to your point, you know, we are very, you know, very important when it comes to being in unison and uh, being on the same page with these things. Um, switching gears, you know, just slightly, because this is the Million Dollar Mind podcast, and it is a, a podcast 
dedicated towards, you know, identifying what you're passionate about. Uh, so I'm very, you know, very curious, you know, where in what you do now, you know, did you ultimately find your passion? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think I had mentioned earlier, it, it started with looking at <clears throat> my family and my culture and the, um, lack of awareness around mental health and of course the prevalent stigma that is uh, there for a lot of uh, communities no matter what um, part of the diaspora you come from um, and I realized that like we need someone uh, we, we need people uh, to, to to get together and, and help us kind of through this cause and I and I thought to myself well again starting with conversation starting there um, that was kind of like the the, the first kind of in for me, if you will. Um, and then realizing that for some reason, I don't know what it is yet, I'm still exploring. For some reason, when I speak, people listen. And I've found that I do have the ability to, to bring out that vulnerability in, in people as a ways to promote transformational growth. Um, and, you know, that's, that's kind of my little my little uh, prop to myself there for, for something that I've found as like a gift. Um, that not everyone possesses, and I've recognized that, but with that gift comes a lot of responsibility. Um, and so as far as um, making change, um, I have to start somewhere and I have to, you know, there's this idea of like, once you get to the top, like that's it, there's no looking back. And I kind of go a little bit against that and that I want to look back to to see how can I help the people coming behind me. Um, so even if you don't think any of the, the things that you've done to contribute to this cause mean anything, the reality is someone is always watching. Someone is secretly like, wow, if this person can do it, like, so can I. And so I really just wanted to open up that space um, and welcome people of color, specifically Black people to the table. And, you know, I've said this before, um, you know, in this segment, but if we're not invited to the table, if they don't want to make space for us at the table, well, you know what? I'm gonna make my own table and I'm gonna decide who, who gets to sit there and who doesn't. Um, but it's about empowerment. And I think that the work that I try to do day in and day out embodies that. I'm not saying that I get it perfect all the time. I am still also working through my own black identity development. I recognize, you know, um, points of privilege that I do have and also points of marginalization and oppression. Um, but if I can help, if I can open the door, if I can share my experience with someone who's coming behind me, I know, I know that change can happen through that. Um, but we have to stop thinking that like we can't share these secrets with other people or that they're gonna come and take my spot. That's not gonna advance us in any way. Um, and so I just want it to be some sort of speckle of hope or change for the community and hope that I leave a legacy that that people can remember mm -hmm. snap it up snap it up to everything you just said because you you damn skiffy i'm going to make my own table and i'm gonna sit it right next to your table just so you know i'm in the building mm -hmm. i i feel all of that energy and even to your point you know of, of you know getting to the top and looking back not only to see the people that you can continue to help but also just to get a glimpse of the people you already helped the people who you impacted they're always going to be behind you uh, and the part of that looking back is being able to gauge and take a look at what your legacy is, because that's really all legacy is, is the people and lives that you've impacted and, you know, the the army, you know, the the army that you develop, you know, along this path and this, you know, this journey we call life. Um, so, you know, I'm glad that you found your why you found something that you're passionate about and what you do. That's always a, a huge accomplishment. You know, how do you continue? You know, how do you are? Uh, how are you receptive? I guess, the opportunity so that you can continue 
to do, you know, the things that you love and, you know, do the things that you enjoy versus doing the things that you may not enjoy. Yeah. So, um, I would definitely think of, um, you know, myself as a type of person who would, uh, uh, it's like a cliche quote, but, um, I'm the type of person to, to say a prayer for something that I want and then turn around and go get it. Um, there's this need to remember that like, these things are not going to just fall into your lap. It requires work. It requires intention and dedication. Um, and so I definitely think that, um, from that perspective, that's something that, um, again, I really try to embody, um, and know that like, for me, I can make that change if that's something that I set my mind to, knowing that there will be resistance, um, you know, at some point. Um, but just keeping myself uh, level-headed, again, checking in with myself around like, okay, do I need to create uh, uh, some space here? Do I need to implement some healthier boundaries, if you will, um, between engaging in some of this work and taking a step back? Because it can be a lot. It could be very, very draining. Um, and as far as the things that I do in my day, day-to-day work, um, so I officially graduated last year. I completed my postdoctoral fellowship um, in August, and now I'm a staff uh, clinician where I currently work. Um, I am also now the co-facilitator of our diversity seminar uh, for the training group that is currently in our year um, and really, really challenging the system uh, to make changes. We recently had a, a big acquisition. And so we're kind of going from like a small kind of family vibe to more of corporate where unfortunately in corporate, you end up becoming a number. Um, and so really finding ways in which that I can advocate for those who feel voiceless, ways that I can offer some of my expertise to get people to think a little bit more outside of their box. Um, and that's kind of just the, the place that I'm starting at is wanting to build that reputation. Um, even in the short amount of time, you, you reached out to me to talk about my expertise. I've been invited to uh, do some workshops on an activity uh, called storying, um, and the opportunities are there. I've already set my intention. I've already spoken the things that I want to see happen into existence, and now it's time for me to, to, to do the work, um, and I can't expect it for it to just happen just because I say diversity matters to me. Um, it's not enough. And so I, I try to promote that within the work that I do with my individual clients and for the people that I work with. I'm really just trying to embody that in more ways than one. 1000% because faith without work is dead, right? And um, I mean, even just hearing you mention that drive to just pray about it, meditate on it, you know, create the thought and then manifesting it by doing the work. Uh, it, it just it brings up so many memories of how, how also I feel as though in our communities, uh, there's an over usage of of religion. Uh, no, and it doesn't matter what religion it is. It could be Christianity. It could be Islam. It could be Buddhism. I feel as though in communities of poverty, there is some type of plastering of religion to make you forgive and forget what has happened and to have you pray about it and just let it be after that. Oh, go pray about it. And we forget the second part of that is to do the work, right? We, you got to pray about it and do the work. And there's an over usage of, you know, just religion altogether that we just let it be what it is. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I did want to, you know, say that piece and, and get that out into the area as well. So people are more mindful of, you know, how they use religion and what they're using their religion for, you know? Um, and I've even had my dad, right? My dad was, a Muslim for as long as I, as long as I've known them plus some, right. Mm -hmm. And 
just recently he told me about a few months ago he's like son i just you know denounced islam as as a religion just because he he just started asking himself very critical questions you know what have i been getting out of this you know and you know, i don't share that to you know have anybody else you know denounce their religion is but it's it, it's a it's a point is a reason why someone who believed in something for as long as 50 plus years decided to no longer believe in that so i think that we should also you know start to question those things as well um what uh what are some areas that you feel are currently underserved that would make your job a whole lot easier mm, that's so deep um uh, I think one, it's like the the managed care system. Um, so insurance, uh, and that's that's not something that you get to tackle overnight because insurance companies and the healthcare system is uh, incredibly powerful. Um, however, but I've noticed that there's this you know recent um, kind of movement around how important mental health is and how people really need to pay attention to those signs and do better and da 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 da, da. and yet insurance is like yeah, but we're not trying to cover that. We're not trying to make that easily accessible for you. You're going to have to pay out of pocket for that or, you know, a large premium in order to get, you know, whatever services that you need. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, this, this seeps into political review, uh, p- political views rather, um, and, and a whole lot of other messy kind of complex layered things, but um, the access one is important. So, you know, what kinds of, um, uh, how do I say this, like efficient um, uh, healthcare facilities are in these neighborhoods? What kinds of resources do they have access to? This also starts from like, are there basic needs being met? You cannot focus on the psychological and emotional all too much if folks are literally just trying to survive day to day. There's there's no room for that. Um, And what happens in those moments of being compromised out of fear is that it it really does attack our prefrontal cortex, you know, that's important for executive functioning, decision making, planning, organization, all of that is compromised when you're in those states constantly. Um, And so I think that if we can, I don't know, revamp our healthcare system to actually provide those resources, um, I think that that's, you know, one place to start. The other, unfortunately, also comes with compensation. this is not a high paying field by any means, whether you're getting into psychology or social work. A lot of us do this because it is just a passion of ours and we're not really looking for that monetary compensation. But the reality is, is that, you know, all these spaces are promoting mental health, but they're not willing to pay providers for the work that they're doing um, in a way that is comparable to, you know, the type of work that they're doing. Um, we're already getting, you know, met at these uh, kind of roadblocks with um, the healthcare system. Um, and I think part of that is also just the general stigma that we hold towards mental health. If you are, you know, having a cough and you're not feeling well, you go to the doctor, they might prescribe, okay, here's, you know, a regimen that you can, you know, uh, engage in that will kind of help these symptoms. It's, it's the complete opposite when people think of mental health, right? Because there's that stigma associated with it. But if we can normalize the idea that like your mental health is important, it does matter, it does impact your physical well-being as well, why don't we have more preventative care when it comes to mental health services? 
why don't we have, you know, this idea of at least, you know, a once a year, just like you do with your physical exam, once a year, just checking in, touching base, making sure that, you know, everything is going uh, well or smoothly as, as much as they possibly can um, as a way for people to start just recognizing what are those signs? I need support, asking for help, but not feeling shamed when doing so. Um, I, I know that that's something that comes up consistently um, in our community is not wanting people to know. Um, and I think that that's one way that we really just kind of get in our, our own way and really block our blessings. I, I agree. And I even see a direct correlation to the, the compensation piece and the insurance coverage piece, right? Because on one edge, you know, you want to be able to charge more for your expertise, which you deserve. But then it's also like you want to make yourself more accessible to people who need the services. But unfortunately, people just can't afford you know, but, but so much. So if these insurance companies were able to, you know, cover that, you know, which is why people need help with insurance anyway, to, you know, be that extra, you know, that extra hand that you, or that extra shoulder to lean on when, uh, when, you know, financial times are hard, then it, it, it makes it a lot more, uh, you know, accessible for, you know, people in that lower bracket, you know, to have those services and for the specialists to be able to be paid for that. Uh, I mean, I, I'll I'll take the 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 case for being the controversial and being very polarizing with making the statement, but uh, I think the reason why uh, these insurance companies don't want to you know cover you know the services of mental health is for the fact that it just doesn't make as much money as far as the sales of drugs. You know, it just doesn't make as much money. So it's like, why would we put money into this if we're not going to see the return that we need to see, which is unfortunate, right? Yeah. And, you know, the, the interesting caveat to that is even if we could not get every single person who needed or wanted those services, what I've noticed has uh, been happening more and more is, you know, uh, as I'm working with clients, teaching them new skills, um, helping them expand their, their frame of thinking, they take what they learn and they bring it back to their community. They start making changes even within their family unit, within their friends and, you know, their immediate community. So it's kind of like this ripple effect that happens um, and that they're able to, you know, say, hey, I learned something new and I, I want to share that with you. Just by doing that alone, we are breaking these generational curses, if you will, where we're literally transforming our DNA in those moments. And just because it's the way things have always been does not mean that's the way that things need to always be. And so I really try to help folks understand that, especially when they're talking about, you know, conflict within the family and not being able to, you know, just be supportive um, in their, their journey through mental health. Um, and I found that that really, even though you cannot control other people's um, actions or responses, you can control your own actions and responses. And by changing up the system, even just a little bit, it has a, a, a ripple effect, even if it doesn't change things drastically, it's at least going to make someone else in that uh, system, if you will, think twice, right? And that's what we need. Slow down a little bit. Think, just think about this. What does that look like? How can we make that change? And I see that happening more and more where, you know, clients will come back and be like, you know, I, I, I shared this thing with a friend of mine because um, it really, really helped me. And now it's working for them. It's the same thing. Word of mouth is so important in our community. Um, and so the reputation that we can potentially build with effective um, mental health services can do a lot, not just for that individual, but for the folks around them. And then it just keeps on spreading. Like wildfire. <laughs> and and you yep. said, you know, just because this is the way things have always been doesn't mean it necessarily has to always be. It's a very good, uh, you know, 
point for self-reflection even as well, because oftentimes you hear us make statements like, oh, I've always done it this way. I've always been this way. That doesn't mean that you need to continue to be that way, especially looking at what you're wanting or the destination you want to be in your current, you know, your current location. Is that the reason why you haven't gotten from point A to point B? Uh, so very good, very good question to make. Um, switching gears, because we we went down, we went down a, a rabbit hole there. Switching gears just a little bit. We are transitioning to uh, the next segment of the show. And I like to call this segment rapid fire. And this is, you know, meant to lighten the mode, uh, lighten the mood, you know, get you to open up a little bit more. And I'm going to ask you five random questions and, you know, you just answer with the first thing that comes to mind. No, no reason to um, overthink it. They're fun questions. We good to go. All right. Okay. All right. So the first question is how much would someone have to pay you to eat a spider? Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> I would say, you know, I, I would go for like at least 500. I, I definitely uh, drank a uh, snake wine when I went to uh, China. It was like a tad fermented snake uh, that makes this really, really strong potent wine. So I guess it's not too far off. And in some countries, they look at spiders as protein. I don't see it that way, but people eat them. So I guess yeah. one for $100 when people <laughs> I live in Georgia now, and I've, I've seen people eat crickets. Like, people, they literally sell that in stores, like seasoned crickets. <laughs> that is news to me. <laughs> Same thing. It's like the protein thing. I don't see it either like that. I won't, you know, just pick up a bag of crickets and pay to eat them. Um, but tell me about that experience with the with the snake wine though. Like, did it taste good? Did it did it do the job? <laughs> I thought that this was like aged like rum or something like that. But uh, I, I went in, I think it was 2014. I, I did an immersion trip uh, with my uh, college to China for two and a half weeks, and we were on this like boat cruise, like looking at some historical sites or whatever. Um, and they were walking around with like this jar with like a, a snake just like wound in it. Um, and you, you could pay to, to try it. And literally they gave me like maybe a centimeter worth, uh, in a cup and it was so strong. And I was like, mm, what did I do? Um, but I survived, um, and I did not have any, you know, GI issues or anything after that, but definitely put some hair on my chest. That thing was strong. Man. Oh man. Okay. I, I might, I might try it next. I just wanted to know what it was like if I see it. That's obviously a sign for me to try it. <laughs> All right. Which uh which celebrity chef, if you know more than one, because I only know one, would you most like to make you dinner? I don't really know any chefs, only whatever right. Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> Jordan Ramsay, okay. I mean that was he, okay, so he was actually number two then, because I was the first person I thought was Guy Fury. Yeah, no, I know nothing about. Yeah, so I was like, okay. All right, so we'll skip that one. What do you think is the most unpleasant sounding word? Uh, most unpleasant sounding word. Um, I guess I'm kind of going to go with the cliche, like moist. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, it can be, a, it, it definitely could be an awkward word, right? Okay, I'm with you on that one. This one is, uh, if you got stuck in an elevator and were forced to listen to just one song, what song would it be? Mm, I would say, uh, I'm going to say Drake, Take Care. I love that song so much. A good song. I'm not mad at you for saying that song. 
<laughs> I was I probably would have put on some like meditative sounds just to like because I might drive myself crazy listening to the same song over and over again, but that's just me. <laughs> uh what is the funniest place you've ever fallen asleep? Um I guess I, it's kind of a tie between two uh being in the hair salon chair and doing doing the head bob when you fall asleep and like oh no please like stay here i've definitely done that um the other thing uh i would say is one time in high school i was having some sort of reaction and i took like benadryl um before school started and by this time like homeroom i was already like super drowsy i'm sitting in front of my locker like crisscross applesauce like hunched over knocked out uh, so that's probably one of the weirdest places i i would say man uh the the first one though I'm, i've been there done that every week right I, it's just something about you know getting a haircut for me or getting your hair done it's just it's therapeutic so i'm with you on the falling asleep in the chair I, i've i've been nicked a couple of times for the fact that i hit one of those head bobs so i'm there i'm there with you okay the last one if you were to be invisible for a day what would you do Ooh, if I was invisible for a day, I would probably, probably want to sit in on, huh, I don't know. That's a good question. Where would I want to go? I'm not really sure, but anywhere where probably some big decisions are being made that like don't necessarily get disclosed. So it's probably like sitting in some of those government meetings, but um, that's probably what I would say that I'd want to sit in on. I probably asked that question maybe a total four times. And I think that's, you know, everyone has a hard time asking, answering that. So they go with that one, right? Being in the room with where some major decisions are being made ultimately. All right, Coolio, Coolio. So that wraps up that uh, rapid fire segment. Uh, we are getting ready to wrap up our show. So Shade, I definitely want to say thank you for, you know, taking time out of your evening to have this conversation with me. I've been super excited about having it. Uh, and you pretty much hit the nail on the head with all of your answers. So again, I appreciate you um, wrapping up, you know, today's conversation. Uh, I do have a couple questions for you and I ask these questions pretty much, you know, every episode, especially for season three, as it, this is a big topic uh, of this season. Um, how would you define self-love and, and what does self-love mean to you? Yeah, I would say that that is the ability to say no. Um, when you come from collective cultures, it, there's always this expectation that you need to kind of think for the unit and not for yourself. Um, and so trying to dismantle that just a little bit, there's there's definitely a luxury in, in having more of a collective ideology, ideology rather, um, but the ability to say no um, and set healthy boundaries. Um, unfortunately, right, if we cannot take care of ourselves, if we do not put on our os oxygen masks first, we can't help anyone else. We cannot be useful. Um, so I think that those are the things that I think of when it comes to self-love. Definitely. And that was a great analogy, too. Never really thought about that. Like, if you don't put on your oxygen mask first, if you don't take care of yourself, you definitely can't, you know, pour into others and, and take care of others as well. Um, uh, okay, great. Great answer to a to a to a very deserving question um the next question would be if you were to run into you know your 18 year old self what would be some advice that you would give 18 year old before being dr shade caldwood 18 year old shade 
Oh, two things I would actually say. Leave them boys alone. Leave them alone. Uh, I definitely do not regret anything that I've done in my life um, or want to change anything because that's how I got here. Um, but I, I definitely think that uh, in college, I was young and impressionable. I think that I, I probably blocked a lot of blessings for myself. Um, I, like I said, I would not go back to change it. Um, but if I, if I could talk to myself, um, I would say, don't follow them, boys. Leave them alone. Um, I think my quality of life would have been a little bit different. Um, and then the other thing I would say is um, to remind myself that you do not need to carry the weight of the world by yourself. I'm pretty big on internalizing and just like putting on that strong face. Um, but I realized, um, you know, throughout my my life that you can't do anything alone. Uh, we are not meant to be in isolation. As human beings, we crave and need that social interaction. And I, I just wish that I could grant myself that grace to know that I didn't need to carry that weight by myself. I, I agree. I agree. And that was a great answer. Uh, both of those were, were great answers. And I would agree with that. You know, we all have a secret ingredient, right, to this entree we call life. And no matter, you know, where you are, there there's bound to be one person that shares a similar interest with you, um, you know, just just naturally. So stop figuring stop assuming that you got to do it by yourself. Even with business, I, when I first went into, you know, endeavors by myself, I thought it had to stay like that. Hey, you entered this business by yourself. You got to figure it all out by yourself. And, and that's not the case. And quickly did I realize you need a network, right? You need people who know how to do the things you're not good at so that you can focus on the things that you're good at, which is again, back to, you know, what, what, what you're saying. So again, Dr. Sade, it's been great having you on the show. Uh, I want to dedicate this time now for, you know, you to plug yourself in, tell us where we can connect with you, uh, any special projects you have coming up, what you're excited about. Now is the time to, you know, share. Yeah, I don't know. I'm focusing on just passing my license board exam. Um, I got that coming up um, in November. So that's where a lot of my energy is, is going into. But um, as far as connecting with me, I haven't quite understood how I want to maybe balance the professional and like personal side of me but uh if you want some jokes and some laughs you can follow me on instagram uh, my tag is simply shade baby um and uh, i think one of the reasons why i've been able to connect with so many people on social media is because i just kind of show more of the raw and real me i'm okay with like showing up in my bonnet i'm okay with not looking 100 percent all the time um and i found that that's a way for other people to kind of connect with me but other than that I think I'm going to be a name that people are going to hear over the next several years. I don't exactly know in what capacity, but I know it's going to be good. Um, I got a lot of projects and ideas that I've been getting a lot of support around actually putting into action. Um, and so hopefully I might be back here uh, with some, some new news and updates about what's going on. But really, I think, you know, one of the things I just want to leave with folks is um, not to be cliche, but your mental health matters, talk and ask for help. Um, there's always someone out there who is willing to listen. Um, and you do not need to fight any battle by yourself. Thank you for sharing that. And I definitely think you will be back. Uh, Shada, you are, I can see you being a fan favorite and the millionaires on the show are not shy to let me know when they need to have their fan, fa fan favorites back on the show. So I definitely think that we'll be having an, another conversation uh, in the near future. And again, I want to just say thank you for taking time out of your evening to just share with not only myself, but to the millionaires out there that will be super thankful to the information that you've dropped and just the creative ways that we can, you know, prepare our minds and fortify our minds against 
you know, some of the things that we're, you know, that we're facing, whether it's fear, poverty, or, you know, other psychological effects that come with those things. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And as always, to our millionaires, I want to say thank you for you all just tuning in week in, week out. And I want to thank you all in advance for becoming the change agents that you're bound to become as you apply today's principles that you've heard uh, from Dr. Sade. I'm your guy, Kai Speaks, and you just heard it from Dr. Sade Caldwood on psychological effects of poverty and other things, right, in the Black community. Just just remember to keep focused, build momentum, and drive results so you can live abundantly. Peace. Hey, guys. So thanks to you all, the Million Dollar Mind podcast has went global the number one passion and attraction podcast in the world right now with huge support from the UK, Ireland, France, Belgium, Tanzania, and of course the United States. With this accomplishment, we are getting bigger and better than ever. Now that said, we are soon incorporating video production and YouTube platform to the show so you guys can witness the podcast in full effect. You can now become a supporter of the Million Dollar Mind podcast by visiting the link in the description below. Share your support with me via email and you will receive a free gift. Tis the season to give. Peace.